Hello everyone, bonjour. It's the 2nd of December, 2021. Welcome to episode 12 of Follow the Light, a podcast dedicated to the fine art of film-based photography. This podcast is coming to you from Abbotsford, near Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I'm your host, Bob St. Cyr. If you have any comments or ideas for future podcasts, please let me know. You can reach me at brsc at uvic.ca or leave a message on my Facebook page called Follow the Light. On the last episode, I shared a cursory of my photographic chronology, and for this one, I'd like to continue on and talk a bit about pinhole photography and share a few images on the Facebook page. In episode 5, we interviewed Dominique Hoskowski, an architect who recently launched a successful Kickstarter campaign to bring the world a newly designed stereo pinhole camera. So if you'd like to know more about Dominique and his new camera, check out that episode of the podcast. According to Wikipedia, a stereo camera is one with two lenses that takes two pictures just slightly from different perspectives, something called the interaxial or ocular distance. The special thing about these cameras is that they produce images that are three-dimensional. Stereo cameras enjoyed a bit of popularity in the 1950s, and some of these cameras were known as the Sputnik Stereo Camera, Kodak Stereo Camera, and the Veriscope 40, to name a few of the lens versions. Okay, back to this episode's topic, pinhole photography. Right from the start, I want to point out that in the amount of time dedicated to this topic, I will not and cannot cover all the wonderful and interesting aspects of this genre of photography. Hopefully it will reaffirm what you already know, or just let me know where I have strayed from the facts, and perhaps stir up an interest in pinhole photography, or reignite one. For a more in-depth treatment of this topic, you can check out the Lensless Podcast through their Facebook page and actual regular podcasting schedule. The pinhole camera is based upon a device called the camera obscura, a small hole at one end of a confined dark enclosure such as a box allows light to enter and project across the length of the enclosure forming an image from the outside onto the back of the enclosure, but upside down and left and right are reversed. By placing a piece of film or photographic paper at the closed end, you can preserve the image as in traditional film photography. I made my first pinhole image back around 1996 out of the styrofoam casing for a Mamiya camera lens. It was about the time I began my journey with medium format photography. So I made a successful pinhole exposed negative But then I never really considered pinhole work much after that. Skip ahead several years, and I became a member of the Analog Photography Users Group, APUG, now called Fotrio. It was one of the banner ads that kept coming up that got me thinking about pinhole photography again from Zero Image, which was around May of 2007. I thought I'd give pinhole photography another try, and boy, this time it really caught my attention and I've never looked back since. One of the neat things about pinhole photography is that practically anyone can make a pinhole camera from any sized 
light-tight container. Now, I've made a variety of pinhole cameras myself over time, but honestly, I'm not that interested in making the cameras as there are many craftsmen out there making beautifully crafted cameras, such as the Zero Image, Vermeer, and the Harman Titan. And I'm looking forward to trying my stereo pinhole camera in the near future. There is not only an art to making photographs, but also in the making of some of the cameras, such as those mentioned. Along with the simplicity of use and variety in craftsmanship, you will find that pinhole cameras come in a variety of typical shapes and sizes, from small 35mm to 8x10 large format cameras and bigger. The largest pinhole camera in the world was built out of an Air Force hangar in California, USA. Moreover, unlike traditional lens photographs, pinhole images extend from those that are fairly clear with legible text to those that are fuzzy beyond recognition. However, the depth of field provided by pinhole cameras and the ways in which light can be stretched is quite substantial. So although pinhole cameras may have an antiquated or simplistic look, they allow for flexibility in photographic imaging through how they are designed to manipulate light. I remember this one time whilst visiting the Saanich Fair, it was interesting to note the looks and comments that come from people passing by. When people see the tripod and a rectangular box with a shutter release, no viewfinder, no lens, and the other expected bits and pieces of the prevalent digital single lens reflex cameras, it sometimes stops them to wonder and inquire about the gear. There seems to be an assumption of great age for pinhole cameras, and perhaps surprise when it is revealed that the camera is contemporary. At any rate, it is fun to chat with people about pinhole photography, and I think it is important for us analog photographers to be friendly and be good ambassadors for our art form. Who knows, it might encourage new people to join analog photography. I've come to appreciate pinhole photography as a wonderful expression of art in a day and age where the here today, gone tomorrow sense of technology is so prevalent, where a terabyte of professional pictures can vanish in an instant, where the next great thing surplants everything else, even though it was working just fine. Yes, I do use a modest digital camera, my mobile phone, but also enjoy the type of imaging possible through the quiet simplicity of pinhole photography. Another important characteristic to note about pinhole cameras is the small f-stops or apertures, opening that lets light into the camera that we deal with such as f-235 or f-176. When you consider that the average optical glass lens may only go to f-32, you quickly realize the significant difference in exposure times and depth of field differences between the two types of photographic imaging. Pinhole photography almost always requires a tripod or steady surface, a shutter release cable, and patience for exposures that may run from several seconds to several minutes in most cases. So working with pinhole cameras takes a little more time than usual, a characteristic pleasure of doing photography rather than rushing at the fast pace of personal digital assistant living. With pinhole cameras, batteries are not included nor are they needed save for perhaps a handheld light meter. But even without a light meter, you may be able to get by with the good old Sunny 16 rule and just extrapolate for the appropriate f-stop of your pinhole camera. Otherwise, there are probably several different apps 
one could use on one's mobile phone to calculate exposure times. All right. So although this episode is dedicated to pinhole photography, I thought I would inject one more thing into this episode, and that is my budding experiences working with a new emulsion to me, Fujichrome Duplicating Film, rated at ISO 12. And I'm going to share a little bit about that experience with you here now. And then I posted some images for you to look at on Instagram and on a Facebook page, Follow the Light. So I hope you enjoy this little extra segment that I've plugged in here. And let's get to it. I'd like to talk to you about a new type of film that I'm using. Well, it's new to me, but a very old film. I've posted a couple of pictures of it on uh, the Instagram and Facebook that I use, and I'll be sharing images on the Follow the Light Facebook page so that you can check out the images, or you might want to listen to this podcast while you're looking at some of those images. You can you can see the both. So what I've done is I was sent, thankfully, uh, some people from the large format photography group in Calgary were getting rid of some things and, and kindly gave me some old film. And uh, in that package of film was a, a tin, a bulk roll tin of Fujichrome duplicating film. And it said process before 1989. So like that's like 32 years ago because now we're in November of 2021. So that was that was quite a quite a long time. It so happened that at the same time I was also processing some of my E6 work from the summer for my my project working in Saskatchewan. And so um, I thought, okay, well I'll process some of this this E6. I'll uh, bulk load a roll, a test roll, and then expose it through one of my cameras. And I chose to use the Nikon FM2N. Um, beautiful camera. I really like working with that. And uh, so just went to a local park, took some shots, came back, processed it, and uh, I'll be sharing the results through Follow the Light. You can also see some of my preliminary results again, as I said earlier on Instagram. So I did that, and so now I'm going to do post-processing in Photoshop. I didn't use a 85B warming filter because this is tungsten uh, film. It's balanced for tungsten light, not for daylight. So I should really be using an 85B uh, filter on it to kind of color correct for it. I don't have that, so I just shot it straight because I didn't even know if I'd get images. Uh, actually, I, I wasn't sure if it would work. So um, I'm happy to report that last night I processed the roll, and lo and behold, there were images on there. Of course, they're, they're very uh, a color cast. And then I thought about it's kind of a, a violet purplish type of color cast. And it made, reminded me of, of Lomochrome purple. And I thought, if I just shoot this film just like it is, my results, I think, will be kind of similar to what I would get with Lomochrome purple. So that's something to consider as well. And on the uh, Facebook website page, I'll be posting the original untouched, I mean, unprocessed. And then I'll show you an image that I've done some, some processing into it, post-processing. 
And what that involves so far is lightening up the image and then also changing the color. So I'll use the, uh, the uh, I'm using Photoshop uh, elements. And in there, there's, a, there's an option in Photoshop elements under the enhance menu to auto smart fix. So I use that first of all, and then I see that that's not quite giving me the results I want. And then I'll go into filters and under adjustments and then photo filters. And there I'll add a little bit more filtration uh, to get it to what it should be more naturally looking. So I'll do that. So and so those are the couple of things I change. Also, I'll, I'll change the brightness and the contrast a little bit. But basically, that's it. I'll change the brightness, contrast, uh, the filtration of the image. And then I'll post that one, the, the uh, manipulated one, let's say, versus the original just coming out of the, just coming out of the, uh, the uh, film tank, out of processing. So that's what I'll be, be showing you, the, the comparing those two different images. And uh, so that's, that's about it. I know this is a very, very short podcast, but I just thought it would be something I'd like to share with you guys. And, and I'm quite happy about it, you know, finding this, this, this really, really old film and still being able to get something out of it, getting good results out of it. I'm really impressed with the grain of it. I'm exposing it at ISO 12 because it is a duplicating film. It has a very, very low ISO. And so ISO 12... And of course, that requires bright sunny days or a tripod and a cable release for exposure. I took it out, it was sunny out, so it was great. Uh, shooting at about 1 125th of a second at f3.5 uh, for, for most of my exposures. So that's about it. Um, I hope you will enjoy the images. And if you have any questions, uh, comments, you can just leave them on the Facebook page there where I'll be posting some of this work. So thank you very much for your time and hope you all have a great week.